coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn. This is 112BK. On the show today, a debate over the fate of the Bedford Union Armory. And Brick TV's own The Show About the Show goes to Sundance. Drinking my booze, watching some movies, trying to find some women on Tinder. Isn't that what everyone's doing? I mean, everyone who isn't rich enough to have to pay any estate tax, meaning 0.2% of all Americans? Whoops, I mean, used to have to pay estate tax before the new Republican tax plan goes into effect. But according to Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, those are the investors, and they deserve this break. And the rest of us? History has shown these investors most often invest in themselves and their business shareholders. But when lower-income people get a little more money, they spend it. And that's what an economy needs to make it thrive. Be it on women, I mean, taking them out on a date, Movies, hello, Hollywood, or booze, right, Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, where all the distilleries are? But you guys will get your way, because this is why you've been enduring Trump all this time. Congrats. On the show today, the development fight that keeps on giving, a difference of opinion over Bedford Union Armory and the plans that look like they're pushing ahead, and the show about the show, a series that's partly set right here in Brick House. It's expanding its audience to Park City. But first, a few things. A tragic bit of news. As Croc was to the Golden Arches, Lowell Hawthorne was to Golden Crest. But on Saturday, in his Bronx headquarters, the CEO and founder of the New York-based fast food institution was found with a single gunshot wound to the head. Authorities believe it was a suicide and say they found a note, though they've not disclosed its contents. Local news outlets are reporting that Hawthorne was deep in debt to the city, though it's still unclear if that was his motivation. Born in Jamaica as the son of a baker, Hawthorne grew his family business from scratch, creating an empire and serving as an inspiration to New York's West Indian community. Brooklyn has perhaps the highest concentration of crusts anywhere, with 29 locations. There's no immediate word about the future of the chain, but they're so popular, we hope that the meat will go on. The New York City Council passed a bill last Thursday that seeks to protect tenants from unscrupulous landlords, landlords who make it a practice to harass longtime tenants, seeking to drive them out and then drive up prices. According to Brooklyn City Council member Brad Lander, this is a business model for some landlords. The new legislation, if signed by the mayor, will begin as a pilot program in certain neighborhoods, including East New York, Bed-Stuy, Brownsville, and Bushwick and it will require building owners to get a certificate of no harassment, meaning you don't have a history of screwing over tenants, before they can demolish or make significant renovations to their building. This program actually began in Hell's Kitchen in 1974, and folks there have been trying to expand it ever since. That's only 43 years. In the meantime, if you believe you're being harassed by your landlord, you can file a complaint with Housing Preservation and Development at 212 863-8060. Tony Monero's house is for sale. That's right. John Travolta's Saturday Night Fever home in Bay Ridge is on the market. And you can own this piece of Hollywood history and the iconic property that put Bay Ridge on the national map for a cool 2.5 mil. This year marked the 40th anniversary of the film, by the way. Interior photos show that elements of the dining room where they shot that amazing dinner scene, you know, JT protecting his shirt from the ragu with the white sheet and his dad slapping him upside the head, they're the same. You know, I work on my hair a long time, and you hit it. 
he hits my hair. I think that was okay, but I'm from Indiana. Up next, the debate over the Bedford Union Armory goes on. know that here in Brooklyn, a conversation is always going on about gentrification, new housing developments, and rising rents. Nowhere are those issues better encapsulated than in the ongoing saga over the Bedford Union Armory in Crown Heights. On November 30th, the City Council gave a final approval to a redevelopment plan, despite a last-ditch lawsuit to stop it. The plan calls for 400 rental apartments with 250 affordable units, with no condos, by the way. But many in the community still worry it will displace too many residents and further gentrify that fast gentrifying neighborhood. Representing the two sides of the issue today, we have District Leader Jeffrey Davis, a proponent of the plan, thanks for coming in, and Jennifer Levy from the Legal Aid Society, which filed the lawsuit against it. Thanks for joining us on 112BK, Jennifer. Thank you for having us. I appreciate it. So first of all, I want to throw this question to you, Jennifer. A lot of people say that, you know, gentrification change happens. It's a natural part of how a city develops or that it's, in no uncertain terms, kind of unavoidable. Well, Ashley, I think that there's a big difference between a project that just happens naturally through regular market forces and one that the city is moving. This project is on city-owned land, mm -hmm. and the city council has the right to determine what the deal is going to look like. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the city has an obligation to study the effects of the gentrification that's going to happen as a result of its actions. Mm -hmm. Our lawsuit says that they didn't do that properly. The methodology that they've used has never been appropriate. They don't measure indirect displacement the way that they should, and that's what the lawsuit is challenging. And it's not just about this project, it's about all projects that are approved by the city using this methodology. Can you talk to me a little bit about the methodology and what might be lacking, or is it? Like, that's the thing. Yes, I think that's a question that a lot of people have about Sure. It. What she just mentioned is this is not geared towards particularly this particular project, right. but how the city handles business across the city. So that's, mm -hmm. that's very informative. This particular project is on city land, mm -hmm. public land and has been extremely transformative. Uh, we've been addressing my organization, the James E. Davis Stop Violence Foundation, mm -hmm. has been addressing violence for the last 20, 25 years, uh, calling out for something like this. Mm -hmm. For our young people to have a place to go to, our seniors, our community, to be more neighborly. Crown Heights is very diverse. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the Brooklyn Museum, we have the Brooklyn Children Museum, but we have to have something there where the children can interact with one another to avoid another Crown Heights riots, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and this particular uh, building, this location, mm -hmm. uh, 250 affordable housing units. 250. Mm -hmm. That's great. Can you tell me what affordable means? What for affordable for me is for families of 40,000, right. 50,000, that range, mm -hmm. where they can actually have a place to go a brand new apartment to live. Mm -hmm. So that's 250 apartments. Then you have a recreational center mm -hmm. where you can have athletic programs, you can have educational programs inside the recreational center. And then there's a medical facility that's going to be mm -hmm. in there, right there as well. And those will be open to everyone who lives in the community? Yes, particularly in Crown Heights. Yes, okay. particularly the Crown Heights community. So we're talking 250 apartments. We're talking uh, a medical center, mm -hmm. we're talking a recreational center, and we're talking office space for not-for-profit organizations like mine and others that can actually uh, have a place to, a, a home to perform their duties much better. So right. this particular facility is just one of a kind 
in the city, particularly in Crown Heights, and mm -hmm. it's been utilized appropriately. And you think it'll be a boon to the community? Yes. Can you tell me, city-owned land, that keeps coming up. How do we describe city-owned land? Does that mean it's public land? Does that mean it's for public use? I think a lot of people hear city-owned land and they don't know exactly what it means. Can you talk to us a little bit and how that relates to this particular project? Sure. City-owned land is land that's owned by the city of New York. And mm -hmm. if it's owned by the city of New York, then it has to go through a city council approval process. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that process, the local city council member has the ability to approve or disapprove it. And if it's city-owned land, then the city could structure the deal by which it is sold or taken. That means that they don't need the same level of subsidy in order to provide truly affordable apartments. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Davis describes what, af what affordable is to him. Under the city guidelines, affordable can be as high as $2,700 a month for a two-bedroom apartment. Wow. So we have to ask ourselves when we're structuring these deals, if it's affordable, affordable to whom? Is it affordable to the people who live around the project site? Or is it affordable to people who will be displacing those people? And do you see this particular project being something that accelerates gentrification in its worst sense, which is like as something that displaces? Or do you think that there is an opportunity for it to do exactly what they say or think it'll do? I think it is clear that it's going to have a gentrifying effect. Mm -hmm. The city itself determined that it had to undergo a full analysis because of the size of the project. Mm -hmm. The threshold being 200 units that would um, have, a, have, a, have the effect of displacing people because the people moving in are going to be of a higher income than the people who live there now. Mm -hmm. So they already made that threshold determination, but then they cut it off and they didn't do a full analysis. And that's mm -hmm. what we're challenging in this lawsuit. We're not challenging the use of the premises for recreational purposes. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a referendum on whether there should be a recreational facility there. It's a referendum on whether the city has the responsibility to be honest in its analysis and mm -hmm. what it puts forth to the public when it, when it agrees to a deal like this. And why a lot of people felt like once the condos were not part of the issue that um, that would be the big take, like the condos are not part of an issue anymore, so people are going to jump on board and they're going to be for it. But that's not what happened, well, right? And why is that? Because we have a certain amount of units that are set aside for affordable. We're not entirely clear on what income ranges those will be available to. Mm -hmm. But there's also 150 apartments that are not that are going to be market rate. Uh, mm -hmm. And those are the ones that will have the displacement effects. So okay. whether it's a condo or whether it's an apartment that's unaffordable to the local area residents, it still has a displacement effect. Okay. And Jeffrey, who's going to set the rate for these apartments? Well, the, you have the developer, you have the community. Mm -hmm. The community is very important. It's important now that once we got through the EULA process that we have to hold the developer mm -hmm. and everything he says, we got to make sure that he does what he does. Right. So our job is nowhere near over. Now we have to make sure that everything that's been put in place is actually done. So that's a whole other phase. So mm -hmm. the community as a whole, the people that have been a part of this project, uh, has to hold the developer accountable to make sure mm -hmm. that he does his job. How has that worked out in the past with these situations where um, developers use city-owned land or buy city-owned land it's in order to do a big development like this with the affordable housing, with, you know, the other units, and the community comes in and helps them set the rates, but, I mean, has that worked out before? Is there precedent for that? For Crown Heights, this is the first big, giant project that mm -hmm. I've been involved in from the beginning to the end. Uh, in the past, I don't know if I'm familiar, but with this particular project, we're going to hold 
everything that says that they said they're going to do, they're going to be held accountable to actually do it. Okay. It's also construction jobs, 400 construction jobs. Mm -hmm. I want to see 400 construction workers working on that site from the community, 200 right. permanent jobs. I want to see 200 people working in that site, mm -hmm. permanent jobs when this is over with. So there's a number of things. So we're talking about housing. Mm -hmm. We're talking about construction, at least 400 jobs. Mm -hmm. We're talking about 200 jobs permanent when it's done with the recreational center and so forth. Right. And we're going to hold them accountable. So we're going to make sure that that gets done. Through, when you say we're going to hold them accountable, who's we? Through an advisory board. Okay. You create an advisory board, mm -hmm. and the community will be actually, I'll be hopefully on that advisory board, mm -hmm. right? And through members of the community, that's what I mean by saying have monthly meetings, by monthly right. meetings to make sure that everything is going on smoothly. I couldn't agree more with what Mr. Davis said about we as a community needing to keep developers and the city accountable when they enter into deals like this. The fact is, the law doesn't provide for accountability, so that's all we have. And that's one of the major problems with the way land use procedure works here in New York City. Mm -hmm. Also, Mr. Davis referred to construction jobs. One of the problems with this project is that these are not union jobs. It's not right. a union project. And as mm. for oversight, having a closed oversight mechanism, which is an advisory board that's open to those who are invited, isn't real oversight. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily the real public who's overseeing it. Wow. What kind of broader <laughs> impact do you think this lawsuit could have? Like, not just in Crown Heights, but I guess just for Brooklynites and for New Yorkers in general. Well, the lawsuit itself takes issue with the way that the city mm calculates indirect displacement. One of the issues that we take issue with is that city says that rent-regulated tenants are not vulnerable to displacement. Mm. We know from looking all around us that large-scale projects that, that introduce higher-income people into the community does, in fact, have a displacement effect on rent-regulated units. We're sitting at ground zero of the Atlantic Yards project, which, of course, changed the neighborhood completely. When the Barclays Center happened, lots of people got displaced and were ultimately unhappy with how that situation went down. What if that happens in Crown Heights? Are you worried about that? No, no, we're going to work hard to prevent that from happening. There's absolutely no worry. Similar to understanding that there's a job component where people will be working, there's affordable housing component. We're not concerned about that. I'm personally not concerned about that. We'll be on the front line making sure that everything is going smoothly. I was on the front line, actually, with the Barclay Project for the sports complex. Mm -hmm. And I go there now, just the other night, for a net game, and I see thousands of people working mm -hmm. and addressing violence on a continuous basis. If you have a job, it does decrease you being outside in the street, hitting somebody upside the head or something, or hurting someone, because you're working, you're taking care of your family, you're making money. Right. Like so when I went to the net game, I seen ushers, I seen administrators, I seen mm -hmm every aspect of people working. So I go there and I feel proud mm -hmm. that I was a part of that project where people are working. The housing component, I wasn't a part of that right. aspect of it. Not mm -hmm. the housing component, I was part of the component of people working, mm -hmm. jobs, concerts, ice skating, circus, basketball, mm -hmm. boxing, all of these people are working. So similar to a recreation center slash education center. I see our young people going there, reading. I see yoga. I see our seniors participating in different programs. I see a community engaging, the recreational component. Mm -hmm. I haven't been 
I'm happy with the apartments, the 250 mm -hmm. apartments, but I haven't been vocal on the housing side. I've been vocal, very, very vocal, on the recreational slash educational side. And mm -hmm. and with the and I left that up to the councilwoman mm -hmm. to negotiate, and I said, you have to negotiate, because it's a new day. It's a crisis with housing, mm -hmm. all right? I, I've been addressing violence for years, but it's a new day. People are being displaced, and it's, it's, a, it's a housing crisis, and that has to be addressed as well. Mm -hmm. And coming out of it with 250 apartments, I'm happy. It, so you're it saying that's addressed. not enough, or at least the lawsuit is saying that that's not enough. Jennifer, can you give me your perspective on Barclay Center and how that affected that area? Well, I could tell you that I was also on the front lines of the Barclay Center because I represented the tenants who were in the footprint of the development. Develop, don't destroy? Pardon me? Develop, don't destroy Brooklyn? I didn't represent Develop, don't destroy. <laughs> I represented the rent-stabilized, low-income tenants oh, okay, okay, then, right, right, who, I remember. who lived in the footprint, including a building, a single-room occupancy building full of uh, low-income single people who right. are struggling to maintain their housing and who scatter to the winds, mm -hmm. including a building full of families who lived on Pacific Street for 30 years, and the community is destroyed. That community is destroyed, never to come back. Um, and I haven't been inside the arena yet. Wow. And just a final question here. What's the best-case scenario going forward? The city should be challenged. There should be people on the front line challenging the city mm -hmm. to make sure that they are doing things properly. And I believe mm -hmm. that uh, continuously uh, address things that needs to be addressed continuously, stay on top of it. It's just like an elected official. If the elected official is not being challenged continuously to do his or her job, they can become lackadaisical. Mm -hmm. So we need people to challenge them to make sure things are getting done properly. So we appreciate you for challenging that. And again, not just for this project, but for all over the city. Mm -hmm. And I support the challenge to make sure things that are supposed to be done legally mm -hmm. are done legally. In terms of the recreational slash educational center, we're hoping to decrease violence. I like mm -hmm. to say stop, but we're hoping to decrease violence. We just addressed Juve. In that particular area, the violence skyrockets during that time. We just right. had a wonderful concert mm -hmm. at Meg Evers College, and we addressed that. This year, we're happy to report there was no violence on the parade route. So we're addressing that. And, and that's, how's it so going it's on? happening. Yeah. Jennifer, can we get back to you real quick? Can you answer that question? If the lawsuit is successful, then the city will be required to take an honest, hard look at the effects of its actions and the displacement effects that they will have when they sponsor a project. Right. So I wish we had more time to keep going and keep talking about this, but we don't. I appreciate you both for being on, and I hope to have you on again in the future, because you, I Thank don't you think this much. is Thank easily you. wrapped up. <laughs> Next, filmmaker Kaveh Zahidi and a Brick TV favorite, the show about the show goes to Sundance. Here's a little bit of the series trailer. So I was thinking, okay, I really want to make a TV show because everyone is, there's no money in film and all the money's in TV. That's a stupid idea. I don't know why you want to do that. Wait, we're doing that? I'm gonna make a TV show, it's gonna be great. Oh, I like this, Kaveh, this is awesome. Yeah, I just want to make sure you don't steal anything. What? That's not what that means. I was having sex with this girl. You can hook up with him if you want. It was really sad. It's my show. <gasps> <sighs> so the show is about making a show and it's about making this show. It is a terrible title. So as we've just seen, there's this show about a show. Well, it's more about trying to launch a show that's about, well, it's about a lot of things, but mainly it's about the show or the inner workings of the mind and the office that produces shows. This office, Brick, and the people behind the show. Not this show, but that show. The show about the show. Sound confusing? Well, I, I know. But here to make sense of it and tell us about its acceptance into January's Sundance Film Festival is the creator, 
of the show. Kaveh Zahidi, thanks for being with us on 112BK. Uh, you're welcome. So first of all, can you just tell me about the process of coming up with the concept for the show, about the show? Marijuana. Marijuana! Excellent, excellent. Who's not a fan of marijuana except, you know, like Jeff Sessions? Can you also tell me a little bit about how the show ended up becoming, I mean, if you've watched the show, then you know, but how it did it end up being a part of and using so much of Brick in its series? Well, there's this guy, Adam Shartoff, who mm -hmm. does a podcast, and he had interviewed me for the podcast, and he knew I was looking for a place to take a different show mm -hmm. uh, called Getting Stone with Kaveh. Yes. And so he said, I know this guy at this place called Brick, a guy named Aziz, and mm -hmm. he might be interested. So he right. set up a meeting with Aziz, and I pitched it to him. He didn't like that idea, but he... <laughs> He said, do you have any other ideas? And I pitched this idea, and he eventually said yes. Which is amazing. Aziz is really, you know, I think of him as having a lot of foresight. He knows what's coming around the corner, and he's on top of it. Um, I don't know if he'd say the same thing, <laughs> but I'm saying it. So now this show gets accepted into Sundance. How does that feel? How are you feeling right now? Feels about the same as before. Yeah? yeah. <laughs> How come? Because, you know, like, it's just a mirage, you know? Yeah. It's like, a, it's a receding mirage. Absolutely. It seems like it's going to be great, and then it's just... Yeah. You're still you. Yeah, you're still you at the end of it. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about your decision to put so much of yourself into the show about the show and why that is? Yeah, you know, when I was much younger, I took LSD once. Mm -hmm. I mean, more than once, but... One, <laughs> at least once? <laughs> there's one time <laughs> I had this vision mm -hmm. on... LSD, which was of the Buddha, and I'm not a Buddhist at all, mm -hmm. and he had his hand out, and there was a flower in his hand, like a rose, mm -hmm. and it was just like an image, but it meant something to me, which was that the flower represented beauty, and he was saying, beauty is like right in front of your face, like you don't have to go looking for it, mm -hmm. and I was in film school at the time, and you know, the whole classical Hollywood screenplay structure is all about, right. you know, finding something with high stakes, where there's like a lot going on, and it's kind of very dramatic and conflict-oriented, and I felt like he was saying, no, just look at what's right in front of you and just try to see it. Mm -hmm. It's right there. So instead of making a film that I was writing at the time about vivisection, I decided to make a film about what was just right in front of me. At the time, I had a crush on this girl in the art department. So mm -hmm. I made a film about that. And it turned out pretty well. And I started to realize, like, maybe this is the way to go, just to make films about my life. Right. And there's a lot of humor in it. There's a lot of humor not just in the show, um, as far as like what people say, there's a lot of humor in how it's shot, like the way you capture people's facial expressions and sort of the, the sentences that kind of go nowhere at times. It's like, how do you develop a style like that? Like, is it something that you feel like I'm trying to create a certain style around reality? Or is it more of like, this is just how I see the world and I'm putting that into the film? Uh, I've made a lot of films and it's kind of a style that's kind of evolved pretty organically. Like, how do you tell the story of your life, really? Mm -hmm. And I've just found, like, the style seems to work for me. It's sort of like a funny, accessible, and doable, you know, mm -hmm. like financially. Right. So, you know, it's kind of Brechtian in that I don't, it's not naturalistic, really. Like, I don't, it's not like this is really happening in front of your face. Right. You know, it's more like I'm pointing to something. But mm -hmm. I think there's a pleasure in that distance. So it's just what I like. Yeah, it's just what you like. Well, people always say if you do what you like, then you'll keep doing it. 
and you don't have to worry about always trying to do something I else. I they said the money will follow. Yeah, that's another thing they say is that the money will follow, which for some people seems to be true, and for other people, that's like you never really know. I think sometimes if you're doing what you like, though, what seems like enough before, you can do with less yes. in order to do what you really love. Yeah. And I think maybe that's how the money comes. Yeah. Maybe. Or maybe I'm high. I don't know. Can you talk to me a little bit about what's going to happen at Sundance? Like, are they going to screen it? Mm -hmm. Are there going to be a bunch of people there? Are you going to get to talk about it, full series, one episode? How's that going to go? Well, this year, for the first time, they're doing this new section called mm -hmm. Indie Episodic. And, you know, a lot of festivals have been try starting to do episodic stuff because TV is kind of where it's at. Right. And most of them are doing, like, celebrity-driven kind of stuff, like, you mm -hmm. know, uh, Game of Thrones, new right. episode. <laughs> and Sundance was kind of doing that. They're doing, like, big, big network stuff. And this year they decided to stop doing that, I think because they know that those people don't really need it. Right. And so they're just doing an indie episodic series section. And they said they, want, they wanted like two episodes. Mm -hmm. So we submitted the first two episodes of season two and they said yes. And they sent us our schedule yesterday and it said it was in program four. Mm -hmm. So there's at least four programs of episodic stuff which, and probably each program has more than one series in it. Ours is about 45 minutes with the two episodes. Mm -hmm. So it's probably like 90 minute programs. So I'm assuming there's probably like 10 at least right. shows that they're promoting. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you, what do we have to look forward to with season two? Well, like what's happening? Yeah, like what's happening or like what's on the show? Who's on the show? Basically, my marriage has been falling apart. Right. And, and so did Chronicles, that dissolution. Mm -hmm. um, every episode used to be about the making of the previous episode, mm -hmm. but because this breakup thing kind of like overwhelmed the show, right. I think season three is going to be about the making of season two. Really? That sounds really interesting. And you're for sure going to do a season three? Yes, I am. Yes. <laughs> I'm just making sure. Aziz, yes. Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here, Kavit. Oh, sure. Congratulations on Sundance. Thank I you. can't wait to hear what comes of that because I think it might surprise you how you end up feeling about it. Oh, thank it. you. You have a nice energy. Thank you. Okay, well, you just made my day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about how the new tax plan will affect students, sex ed, and AIDS education and an innovative Brooklyn theater celebrating its 35th year. So come on back. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Ford, and is produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Our show is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer, and is recorded by our studio technical director, Eric Haugesek. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. If you want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us using the hashtag 112BK, email us at 112BKpodcast at gmail.com, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. And make sure you subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcatcher you use. 112BK is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.